prayer gathering tonight at 6.30. Skipped right over that, but prayer gathering tonight, 6.30 p.m. for those that would like to join us. Today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, last week we went through verses 1 through 10, and I'm going to revisit verses 7 through 10. Uh, verses 7 through 10. So I'm going to pray, or I'm going to read those and pray, and then we'll, we'll start. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. There is life here. There is joy here. There's hope there is the humanity of our Savior, Jesus, here. Would you please grant to us understanding and grant to us praise and worship for him for what he came to do. And we ask it in his name. Amen. There are a couple of truths about Jesus. Um, I'm going to say a couple. There's probably a lot more than a couple, but there are a couple I'm going to mention, truths about Jesus that we naturally are going to struggle to understand. The first that I'll mention is the Trinity. The Old Testament reveals to us that God is one. God is one. We worship one God. We are monotheists. One God. That's what we believe in. But then comes the New Testament that develops the idea that this one God has within himself three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we will naturally then ask ourselves, how can God be both one and three? Don't we admit that it is a bit perplexing? The first disciples, they certainly struggled with this. They had no problem admitting that Jesus was the Messiah of God, but they had a really hard time understanding how Jesus was God the Son. And there he is right here with them. He was somehow distinct from the Father, and yet at the same time, he was one with the Father. And 2,000 years later, we still struggle to completely understand this, and I think we will struggle until we're there with Jesus. The other truth that's so difficult is how could it be that God the Son could join his divine nature with a human nature? How could these two things come together into one being? And this is what Christmas is all about, is it not? That God became a man. It's easy for us to say. We say it every Christmas. God became a man. But I have to admit to you that it is very difficult to work out all of the details of what that means and how Jesus lived. It makes us wonder things like, when he was a baby, was Jesus holding the world together? Was he just pretending when he was a baby not to know how to talk? The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of information here. And maybe we'll answer that question here in just a few minutes. But 
As far as just all the details about God becoming a man and what that looked like and how that played out on a day-to-day life, we don't get a lot in Scripture. The Bible certainly does not give us a question-and-answer format to answer all of our perplexing questions. This is one of the biggest challenges that the early church faced in the opening centuries of Christianity. They wanted to know how do they make sense of all this? How do they make sense of God being a man? How do they think rightly about it? And so they had a council of lots of church leaders that came together to answer this very question because there were a lot of heresies that were springing up. People saying things that certainly weren't biblical, just trying to understand what this meant. And what they ended up coming up with was something called the Chalcedonian Creed. I don't have it here with me. You can look that up on your phone and read it later if you'd like to. But what it tries to tell us is, or what it is telling us, is how it is possible for the divine nature to come into contact with the human nature. And they didn't get mixed up together. They both stayed very much distinct inside of this one person. They were not confused, it would say. What the Bible does make clear is that the Son of God came to live a truly human life where he willingly set aside the use of his divine nature except in rare occasions. It was still always there, but Jesus was not constantly accessing that. He was always fully divine. And so what the Son had always been in eternity past was in him, always while he was here. But in order to experience life as a human like us, Jesus came to live as a human being who would be fully dependent on the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, living a life of perfect obedience to the will of God. He came to do what the first Adam failed to do, And he wasn't going to do that with his God cheat code. Last week, maybe you were here, I used the illustration of a police officer who will skip the traffic jam just by turning on his lights and turning on his siren and getting around everybody, and then he turns it off and he just goes back to what he was doing. He just didn't want to wait like everybody else. Let me give you a different illustration. When I was about 10 years old, My favorite video game was The Legend of Zelda. How many of you all played the original Legend of Zelda? You know, what a game at the time. It was something of like a a fantasy hobbit game, you know, an adventure game. Now, I don't remember how long it took me to beat that, but it was probably a number of weeks. It took a long time. But somewhere along the way, uh, I discovered that after you beat the game the first time, There were some cheat codes that you could use, and I could beat the game in a day. I could just go and play it and just beat it. Skipping all the stuff that I didn't want to do that took up all that time, I could just kind of skip right toward the end. I just wanted it to be easier. So even if I beat that game 20 times, and maybe I did, nobody would believe that those last 19 were legitimate, would they? They say, ah, but you skipped. You cheated, you know, in a way. You used codes. You didn't beat the whole game. You just kind of got there toward the end. And I wasn't playing according to the original rules. And if we have something in our minds that Jesus' humanity was something like that, that he used his cheat code. You know, he's got God in there, and if there's something that he doesn't want to do or something he'd like to skip ahead, if he just accesses that, well, 
we think to ourselves that his humanity was not really legitimate. It wasn't really like mine. And so when we read about his obedience, like we will here today, we read about Jesus' obedience, we'll say to ourselves, yeah, but he's God. He doesn't really even have to try. Have you ever thought something like that to yourself? Kind of, yeah, but he's God. When he was tempted by Satan, we might think to ourselves again, yeah, but he's God. Was it even really a temptation, you know? So at Christmas time, we're fine with saying that God became a man as long as we don't have to think too hard about it. Because that can get really confusing. But fortunately for us, there are passages like this in the Bible that force us to think how it is that the Son of God came to live as a man and help us to understand. At the end of the message last week, I asked you to think over these verses to see what questions might come to mind. And if you did that, Hopefully some of those questions that popped into your head will be touched on today and you'll grow, I hope, in appreciation for what Jesus came to do. Because if you have it in your mind that Jesus lived by the power of the cheat code, you cannot help but lose appreciation for what he came to do, right? And so if your default is always, yeah, but he's, you will lose appreciation for his humanity, But if we think biblically with what we are given here, oh, we will grow in appreciation for the Son of God. Because what we see is that he did live in constant dependence on the Father as he grew and learned and obeyed. And if we see it like that, we will marvel at him, which is exactly what we should do. And what we're going to see is also by his example how God intends for us to grow as we follow in Jesus' footsteps. So look with me there at verse 7. It tells us that while Jesus was on earth, that he lived in dependence on God the Father. It says there, in the days of his flesh. What does that mean? It means while he lived as a man here on earth, during those 30-plus years while he was here, he offered up loud cries and tears to God in prayer. And what is prayer? It's telling us that Jesus prayed like this while he was here in the flesh on earth. What's prayer? But admitting your need to God. And that you believe that God is able to provide for your needs. That's what prayer is, right? And so if Jesus was continually accessing his own divine nature as he lived on earth, why would he ever pray? What would be the point except for show? Why would he ever ask for help? As God, he would already know everything. He doesn't need to ask for anything. He has all the power of the world in him. He could just do it himself. Why not just pray to yourself and accomplish it? But that's not what he did. He prayed. This is how he lived. And because it is, 
we can see that Jesus chose to live like other men are supposed to, dependent on God for everything. Isn't that what we're called to be? Truly trusting that we're dependent on God and that he is able to do whatever we need whenever he wants to do it. Asking him for all that we need. So Jesus, we are told, he prayed a lot. And the way that he prayed shows that it was not an act. It says that he prayed with loud cries and tears. And so Jesus, there in his human nature, is expressing his great need for the Father to act on his behalf. He's living out his human nature. And I think this was characteristic of Jesus' way of life, especially during his three years of ministry, these loud cries and tears to God in prayer. But it also seems that we're being told of a specific time when Jesus prayed like this. Can you think of a specific time in Jesus' life where he may have prayed or he did pray to God in this way? Can you think of one? Certainly would have been in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He was praying repeatedly to God, crying out to him. But even as I say that, maybe you're thinking to yourself, but Jesus was not saved from death after he prayed in the garden. He died. And the writer here, he knows that too. And yet he still says that Jesus was heard because of his reverence. It doesn't mean that God's ear was just open to him. Yeah, yeah, I hear you down there, but not going to save you from death. No, that's not what it means. When we're being told here that he was heard, it means that his prayer was answered. And that's what the writer tells us. So Jesus must not have been simply praying that he would not die. He must have been praying for some other kind of deliverance from death because his prayer was heard and answered. God did hear him and save him from death. God saved him out of death. If you know the Psalms, there are several that talk about the death of Jesus. One of these may have been what was on his mind, Psalm 16. It says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead. This is the son saying, you're not going to abandon me there and leave me there. Amongst the dead, I believe that you're going to save me. It says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption, meaning like after several days of the dead, his flesh would begin to rot. Nope. That's not going to happen with Jesus. So after experiencing death, Psalm 16 was going to be his, where it says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus believed this was going to happen, that he would be delivered out of the depths of Sheol and seated at the right hand of God. He trusted in that. He prayed for that. So for Jesus to be heard by God in his prayer means that he would be raised from the dead. 
And it seems that what is happening here is that we're being shown an example of what Jesus went through on earth in the process of how he became the source of eternal salvation, as we're told here, to all who obey him. This was the process by which he became the perfect Savior. We're being shown that there was growth in Jesus that took place over time. Growth. Again, it's not something that we generally think about with Jesus because we say to ourselves, God doesn't grow in anything, does he? And no, he doesn't. God never says to someone, I didn't know that. Or, you know what? I didn't expect for that to happen. Like, that'd be a little bit scary, would it not? Like, we want to know that God knows everything, is in control of everything, and he is. But we're being told here that God the Son came and lived as a man, and he did grow in something. How is that possible? It's because he came and lived like we do as men and women. True human beings who really do grow in things. As a matter of fact, if you were to go back and read toward the beginning of Luke, we only have like one little snippet of Jesus' life, don't we, as a boy? It says that when he was about 12 years old, he came with his family into Jerusalem, and they came for a feast, and then Jesus got lost. But Jesus wasn't lost. His family came back trying to find him, and there he was in the temple with all the, the teachers and the priests and the scribes, and they marveled at him that he understood the things of God like he did. And we're told that he grew in favor and stature with men and with God. He grew in favor. We're, all, we're told something about how he had continued to grow even as a man. Like there was progress there. There was development there. Not as God, but as a man which is how he came to live so that he could fully identify with you and with me and accomplish for us what we could not as men. He came to live as a true human being, which is why what, is what we see here in verse 8. Look with me what it says. It says, although he was a son, he learned, which is crazy, right? He learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus was a learner all the way to the end. And I don't think that we would even skip a beat with this verse. We wouldn't be perplexed by it. We wouldn't be frustrated. We wouldn't have to think twice about it if it were to say this instead. He was the son and he obeyed through suffering. So he was suffering and he just obeyed through it. He charged through it. Wouldn't have a problem with that. Wouldn't be challenged by that. But that's not what it says. It says more than that. It says that he learned obedience through what he suffered. And a statement like that causes us to stop and think, does it not? It challenges our very basic ideas about Jesus. It forces us to consider what he came to do and how he lived while he was here. It blows the idea of cheat code Jesus out of the water. Like that's just not a reality. That's not what he came to do. He was willing to come and live like you and me by patiently making progress as a man who learned obedience. And what is the kind of learning that Jesus experienced? What did he learn here? 
First of all, we can throw out the idea that he had previously disobeyed. It wasn't that Jesus was a disobedient son who needed the discipline of suffering to make him obedient. You following me? It's not saying that. That's how we learn, right? As a son, I learned that way. I disobeyed, frustrated my parents, didn't do what they told me to do, and they had to discipline me, and I had to suffer in order to learn and make progress. That's not what is being said here. Jesus was never a disobedient son. Jesus was not a sinner. And so something else is going on here. And I think the, an illustration from our own experience might be helpful. Do you remember the way that you learned math in school, if you ever learned it, right? We've got to be real here. Some people didn't really learn math. They probably just used their cheat code, which was like their neighbor sitting next to them just to get through math. But if you really learned math when you were in school, you learned it step by step, right? You didn't come in and master one lesson in basic algebra, and now you know how to do all of algebra. No, each lesson was a building block where you grew over time and your ability to do more complex algebra. And so this day of learning was stacked on top of yesterday's day of learning. And what happened if you, like, got sick and you missed a week of school? You came back, and whatever they were working on the next week, you were all confused by because you really needed that previous week to build upon and get to the next one. Algebra 1 became Algebra 2, right? Not going to speed ahead. It is step by step, one thing at a time. And I think this seems to be something of Jesus' experience as a man. He never sinned. No, so his learning process did not include any kind of failure like ours does. But one lesson of obedience through suffering led to his ability to obey and trust the Father for the next one. And so on and so on until all of those experiences collected together where he had obeyed the will of God throughout his whole life prepared him for one final test of obedience where he would go to the cross, where he would suffer, he'd experience the abandonment of God, the wrath of God, trusting that all of that torment and the darkness of death, that after that, after he had completed the Father's will, that God would raise him from the dead. And so would he go through all of that suffering, believing that there was going to be joy for him on the other side? One step of obedience at a time until he, he passed the final act. So that he would become what we see there in verse 9. And that's actually what it says. Look at what it says. Being made perfect. Again, does not mean he was ever imperfect. It's the idea of completion fulfillment. After he had experienced all of those things, he became perfect so that he would be the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So every act of obedience until the time where his manhood was mature and ripe to give his life as the perfect Lamb of God. He was never imperfect. He was never flawed. But like fruit 
that grows to the point when it is ready to be eaten. So he grew to the point of a complete life of obedience offered in death. So my hope for all this explanation of this text or all this thinking that you've done on this text is that you would better appreciate the human life of the Son of God. That all of this would raise up your esteem for him when you think about his manhood, your love for him, even just a bit. So that it would not seem that Jesus spent all of his time here on earth just going through the motions to the place where he would eventually die. Like, yeah, 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 I, this is all simple, this is all easy. You know, cheat code, cheat code, cheat code, skip, 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 all the way to the end, give my life up in death. Nope, that is not what we are being told here. His entire life was lived out intentionally, thinking every day, every step of the way, what the Father wants for him to do, and he did it. And he learned obedience here on earth as he suffered. So Jesus learned through his humanity what he could not have learned without it so that he could serve us right now. And that's what he's doing right now. He continues to serve his people as the high priest who gently deals with fellow sufferers. He is truly able to say to you and to me that he has been there and he has experienced that. He has learned before just as you and I are learning right now. So we are not only encouraged that we have a high priest like him in heaven, we're also encouraged that God is teaching me and God is teaching you. We are sons and daughters being taught like our Savior who went before us. And what I mean by that is that if Jesus was taught by God like this, preparing him for what is to come, does God not also do that for you and for me? You and I will also learn obedience through suffering as children of God. You are learning obedience one step at a time, one math lesson at a time. One difficulty today, trusting in the Lord, prepares us for what is going to come tomorrow. This is how a man or woman grows in maturity and becomes ripe for heaven. So I ask you this morning, is there hardship in your life right now? And I look out there and know some of you and what you are experiencing, and that is certainly the case. There is hardship in your life. And there is an element to that that you should be thankful for. Because it is God's way. You will learn obedience through it. And what you learned today was going to be very useful for you tomorrow. And again and again, all the way to perfection in the kingdom with Jesus. We need to be thankful that nothing is wasted here. I think Miss Lois over here said something like that during the Thanksgiving service. Did you not, Miss Lois? That we're able to see that our suffering, that our weaknesses, our stumbling blocks, and even our sins, all of it, 
are all useful lessons in the master's classroom. We don't have to like that they're there, do we? We don't like the fact that they are there, but when we see them with spiritual clarity, we understand that God is doing something good in us through them. And we need to let him have his full effect in us, not just try to get the lesson over with, which is what we often want to do. We do pray for that, right? God, please deliver me from whatever it is that I'm experiencing right now. But if he does not, then we need to understand, oh, he has so much more for me through it than to be delivered out of it. He is teaching me obedience and maturity through suffering. So brothers and sisters, are you suffering? Are you experiencing the discipline of the Lord for sin? Are circumstances not what you want them to be? You need to know that God is doing something in you. And someday, from the perspective of heaven, and maybe a little bit right now, that's why James can say there in James chapter 1, count it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials. Like what, James? Joy. But there is something of the perspective of heaven in that, to see things with clarity. And in that day, we will offer up praise to God for all those difficulties that were there because they are the tools that he is using to shape you and me into what we will be forever. It's that stuff. And Jesus shows us that in his own humanity, how God works in those that he loves. Jesus has gone before us, but he has truly left something of his footprints for us to follow in faith. Let's give him praise. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you have come to do on our behalf. You lived as the true man. We should, if we are thinking correctly about you, sit here today in awe of what you accomplished. You were not here cheating your way through a life of obedience in your manhood. You lived what we could not do so that we can join you in perfection in heaven. Your obedience amazingly becomes ours. You grant it to us by faith. And so when the Father sees us, he sees all that you have done. We truly do not deserve it. But you delight in giving grace to sinners so that we can know the joy of the Father forever, the joy of your presence and we will sing your praises knowing that we did not accomplish these things. How could we ever stop singing your praises? And that's what we will do in heaven. Live in perfect gratitude for the Son of God. And all these things that are cloudy for us right now, all these things that just aren't clear, we will see perfectly and they will lead to worship. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us a glimpse of that right now, of how you lived here on earth. Oh, life was not easy for you, but you came and did it for us. 
So we offer to you praise. Oh, I hope we do. We praise you and we thank you. And we thank you that it is Christmas time when we are supposed to be reflecting on your humanity. One where you came to learn obedience through suffering so that you could be the source of eternal salvation for people like us. So as we conclude today, Lord Jesus, give us praise. Fill us with your spirit to give you praise. And we ask it in your holy name. Amen.